Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Marantis, where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud native landscape, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory. And I'm John Janshig. This week, we're taking a look at news from across the world of open source, including SigStore, Kuma 2.0, NVIDIA's Physics 5.1, and more. Kubernetes world is uh, kind of in a quiet period after KubeCon, uh, but here in the U.S., it's a busy news week more broadly with the midterm elections having taken place Tuesday. And that wouldn't usually be our remit, but uh, John, you've got a really interesting story about open source voting systems going in kind of into production <laughs> in New, uh, New Hampshire. And they really are. Um, they are not the first, um, as uh, as you'll hear. Mississippi was the first to implement open source voting technology. Um, but as of yesterday, uh, voters in three towns in New Hampshire, Ashland, Newington, and Woodstock, and good on them, uh, were greeted with new voting machines whose software is open source. Uh, those towns have small populations, uh, which I guess makes them reasonable test cases for the new technology. The software is called VX Suite, and it's from a nonprofit called Voting Works, founded by someone named Benedita in 2018. And the software is, as is, you know, our, our tradition. On GitHub, in two repos, uh, including a main code repo and a build repo, documentation, and other stuff, um, which uh, details uh, building a, a, a test system on a host Ubuntu v, uh, uh, VM, um, and uh, building um, and building distributions of the uh, software uh, by copying uh, parts of a built uh, suite on Debian to USB sticks so that these things can be efficiently installed on physical kiosks in uh, voting locations. <laughs> the VX suite supports uh, a range of, uh, of voting kiosks as well as tabulating machines, vote reading wands, and other equipment that automate different aspects of accepting and tabulating votes in a real election. Um, it seems to be written largely. I haven't dug all the way into it, but uh, just a few probes suggest that the whole thing is mostly written in Node.js, which makes a lot of sense, I guess, for development, but also may beg the question of needing to curate you know, imported modules very carefully to avoid, who, who knows, Node-disseminated supply chain attacks. I mean, we've seen stuff yeah. hitting Node. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, we still love Node, but we are concerned about stuff like this. Though, uh, you know, it's important to understand also that the standalone kiosk-based footprint of voting machines, uh, particularly if these are non-networked, offers a different kind of attack surface than a public-facing website. Yeah. Um, from what we can tell, VotingWorks takes security very seriously, as you would expect. Their code base includes messages uh, for code signing, uh, modules for production, which is an important way of helping ensure curation and oversight. New Hampshire had been using commercial machines from a company called AccuVote since the mid-90s, but that company recently announced that they won't be making replacement parts for their machines anymore starting in 2024. The VotingWorks software is, uh, is uh, uh, as I said, uh, used uh, already in five counties in, Miss in Mississippi. Uh, and uh, Adida believes in gradual cutover. He's not in any hurry. He says, I think one area where states should model New Hampshire is to try it on a small scale in a real election, because when technology transitions are all or nothing, there are these massive cutovers. They're so risky. That slows down the process tremendously. It means ultimately we're not deploying better, more secure, simpler voting technology as fast as we could. This seems 
like the kind of sober, honest advice you would expect from the open source community, I gotta say. Yeah. According to New Hampshire Public Radio, after the machines count the ballots on Tuesday, election officials will hold a public hand count in Concord the following day that will cross check how accurate the pilot machines are. And if they prove not to have uh, had any significant errors, then the machines will undergo state and federal verification procedures within the state. This is arguably pretty cool. Obviously, people have been talking about open source as a way of making sure that there's no skullduggery going on in the voting machine system. And, and you know, bravo to these people. Yeah, it makes so much sense that the, you know, the democratic ethos of, of open source would be paired with the actual execution of democracy, right? Let's it's do a, democracy. Absolutely. It's a natural pairing. Uh, well, elsewhere in open source world, uh, Kong announced the 2.0 release of their Kong mesh and Kuma service meshes, with the big headlines being eBPF support and three what they're calling next generation policy updates. Kong Mesh is the company's enterprise offering, which is built on top of the open source Kuma, and Kuma in turn is built on top of Envoy. As with other recent service meshes eBPF integrations, you can now replace IP to handle directing traffic within a cluster. Kong says the new eBPF functionality, quote, can improve the performance of traffic flow latency by up to 12%, unquote. As for the policy updates, these are basically an updated approach to policies that makes it easier for teams to apply them more granularly via a new selector mechanism. According to Kong, quote, the new selectors use a target ref system inspired by Gateway API to select which meshes, services, data plane proxies, etc. are targeted by specific policies. Multiple rules can be specified in the same policy as supported today, or many different policies can be created targeting different subsets. Our new policy system will merge these all together with the correct precedence rules before calculating and pushing the configuration out to the Envoy data plane, unquote. The first three updated policy resource types include mesh traffic permission, mesh traffic log, and mesh traffic trace. And you can check out the open source Kuma 2.0 at kuma.io. Uh, the next story uh, is uh, in a completely different vein, um, NVIDIA the best-known maker of GPU hardware, I guess, uh, they bought a company called Igea, uh, Igea a decade ago. And, and that company was the original creator of uh, the now very widely used PhysX, physics library. In 2019, NVIDIA open-sourced PhysX, making it cheaper and easier for game engine, graphics, and other software to consume this powerful toolkit and its SDK, which uses different physics models to simulate the physics of simple and complex moving bodies in varying gravity fall and force conditions, and also simulates the behaviors of things like hair, cloth, fire, smoke, light, shade, and many other things. Um, Expected for two years, a few days back, they open sourced the 5.1 version of PhysX on GitHub, and they did so under the BSD3 license. This is a change which users have indicated that they clearly prefer. It's a simpler license. Um, at the same time, they have expanded the, the family of uh, products, uh, the, the family of PhysX software products, uh, and open sourced also uh, Flow. Uh, a voxel-based similar uh, simulation engine now bundled with the physics SDK uh, in the same repo um, and also licensed with BSD3. Uh, NVIDIA Blast will also be added to this same uh, family soon uh, under the same license terms. Um, Blast is what they call a destruction engine. <laughs> Always love a destruction engine. I love this. <laughs> A destruction engine uh, that can use PhysX as its underlying physics engine, but is designed to simplify what they call the elements of destruction, which is about 
things exploding and flying apart and crumbling and smashing. Uh, so all this stuff is now part of the of the FizzX product family, increasingly open source, uh, and nicely, if not copiously, documented online. <clears throat> You'd better understand um, uh, a lot about physics from some other source before you go to these docs for, you know, answering any of the most close-in questions. I'm not going to hand um, you through uh, Physics 101 there. Lordy, lordy, this is complex. Uh, new in Physics 5.1 is the addition of support for NVIDIA Flex, which is a simulation sub-engine that does voxel-based finite, ele finite element model soft body dynamics. In other words, it squishes and stretches things, plus position-based dynamics for simulating liquid cloth, inflatable objects, and things like that. They've also added new on-GPU collision detection uh, features uh, to, to, to simplify what used to be a, uh, a, a complicated process of uh, making convex uh, shapes invisible and wrapping them around things so you could detect collisions. Um, on CPU features have also been enhanced. Physics uh, 5.1 users can now define custom geometries, meaning cylinder shapes or implicit block-based worlds can now be supported so that Minecraft workalike that you've been looking to build <laughs> is, is even easier to build. Uh, NVIDIA it says, uh, you know, with this announcement uh, of the drop, that physics role continues to evolve. It used to be focused on video games and consoles. Nowadays, folks are using it for everything, robotics, autonomous driving, factory automation, deep learning, and other stuff. So NVIDIA will no longer be providing ports of the engine to video game consoles. But they also believe with the same motion, particularly with the simpler licensing that the community is free and both both free and capable of creating such ports as they need them. So this is not necessarily bad news. Uh, mm -hmm. It's interesting to think that people are using physics engines to power deep learning projects now, though. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, elsewhere, the SIGSTOR project reached general availability for two of its core components, RECOR, a transparency log, and FULSIO, a certificate authority public benefit service. SIGSTOR is a project of the Linux Foundation and the Open Source Security Foundation, and in our cloud native corner of the industry, it's best known as a tool for container image signing. But big picture, SIGSTOR is meant to address the problem of software verification by issuing certificates through the FULSIO service and then storing the record of activity in an immutable and transparent ledger with record, with transparent meaning that anyone can see that the certified software hasn't been tampered with. Until now, SIGSTOR has been available on a sort of provisional best effort basis, but some big projects have been able to leverage it. Uh, back in August, GitHub floated the idea of using it for package signing in NPM, kind of uh, addressing some of those issues we were talking about earlier. Indeed. But they hit some pushback over it's not quite being production ready at that time. And those are no doubt the kinds of worries SIGSTOR is looking to assuage with these version 1.0 GAs, uh, noting in their announcement that, quote, the APIs are stable and will be supported long term, unquote. Now in a new blog post entitled, Why We're Excited About SIGSTOR General Availability, GitHub confirms that NPM will indeed be using SIGSTOR to validate NPM packages by connecting them to their source repositories and information on build environment and build instructions. And I think that's interesting because it speaks to a critique of kind of shallower SBOM approaches that we're seeing where uh, you, know, you, you might get the actual list of dependencies that the particular package uh, relies on, but not necessarily any kind of contextual information about build environment um, you know, that's going to give you the broader context you need to, to understand that data or to make use of it. Uh, so they're, they're trying to give you a little bit more here. In any case, 
GitHub also notes that they're using SigStore to offer keyless signing with GitHub Actions, which is meant to help developers avoid the hassle of regularly rotating private keys. And just for a little full circle effect here, they cite Kubernetes has a project currently using this sort of keyless signing. Uh, so speaking of GitHub, you have a story that I suspect they are not going to post an excited blog about. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, a, a, a sad and sobering business, uh, a very interesting large-scale lawsuit has just been filed in California by Matthew Butterick, uh, who's a coder, writer, and lawyer. Uh, the suit names uh, GitHub, Microsoft, and OpenAI, and alleges that GitHub's co-pilot programming aid, which is based on OpenAI technology and training and trained on public repositories, largely GitHub, violates open source license terms and infringes on open source developers' rights. Copilot, released in June of this year, is objectively an amazing thing. It uh, works in Visual Studio to recommend and generate code on demand, and a lot of smart developers are at least playing with it and saying very nice things. So this is a, uh, you know, this is something that that everyone can see benefits to, no question. But the problem, says the lawsuit in Budrick, uh, the latter on a very cogently argued standalone website called GitHubCopilotInvestigation.com is that Copilot strips out copyright information and licensing terms that open source developers insert to prevent their work from being leveraged in ways of which they don't approve. In effect, though Butterick doesn't make this argument in exactly this way, Copilot does copy pasta the same way some bad, very bad coders sometimes rarely do. And that's not fair. And incidentally, it puts firms in uh, who, who use this code in real legal jeopardy of building products around code of unknown provenance and later potentially having that discovered and having to make embarrassing arrangements with code creators or being forced to remove code whose terms they can't for one reason or another comply with. Not uh, great. Um, the, the point of open source, obviously, is to share intelligence, but to keep coders you know, reasonably in charge of of who earns from the fruits of their their labors, and mm -hmm. and this is one of the most beautiful things about open source, and something that we are not eager to see messed with. Uh, this is not the first time anyone has said that this is a potential problem with Copilot. In fact, a lot of people have been probing Copilot against repositories, for example, to which they've contributed themselves, and so have a very good idea of what license terms are in there, and have for the past several months been turning up numerous uh, examples of Copilot removing licensing or failing to transport licensing uh, provisions yeah. along with the code that it recommends. But this is the first time that anyone has asked for statutory damages of $9 billion, <laughs> $9 billion. Butterick's lawsuit states that every time Copilot peels away copyright limitation annotations from the code it proffers users, it's causing multiple harms including violating GitHub's Terms of Service, uh, DMCA Reg uh, 1202, which forbids removal of copyright information from open source code and or any code, and California's Consumer Privacy Act. Um, of course, everyone knows the old joke about to err is human, but to really foul things up requires a computer. The $9 billion comes from a basic math computation that a scaled up system like Copilot has violated the DMCA about 3,600,000 times since it first became available to alpha users 15 months ago. And the minimum statutory damage per violation here is $2,500 times 3,600,000 is $9 billion. Um, beyond the lawsuit, the most severe accusation, the most worrisome thing that Butterick uh, says, and and I, I think I agree, is that this new method of consuming code 
via systems like Copilot, attractive as it is, is in a sense the same kind of thing Google is accused of doing when they reprint parts of news stories uh, by major papers on search pages without compensating the, the source of publications. It's disrupting the conventional methods and infrastructures used to share open source code the project basis in which open source code is created and and uh, and uh, uh, around which communities are built. And it may ultimately have the effect of starving open source projects for interest or even awareness um, and, uh, and uh, ending um, the, the phenomenon that makes people want to contribute to it. This is um, uh, pretty severe and seeing as what has happened to newspapers over the past 20 years, I think a real worry. Yeah, that pairs so interestingly with the previous story where you you have you know GitHub Actions and the NPM team trying to create clear lines of provenance, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That that can be readily accessed by anyone, uh, that can be readily validated. And here you have Copilot. You know the, the sort of alleged problem here, and, and I agree with you, is that it's stripping away those lines of provenance. And it's a system that should be entirely capable of recording you know exactly where every code segment that it's grabbed and, and moshed together <laughs> comes from uh and keeping track of those, those licenses right i i think that there's a an interesting philosophical question i mean you're obviously right but but the point is not just provenance the 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 the, the point that's being made here is that it's analogous to someone saying, well, the New York Times was the origin of that story. They paid a writer to write mm -hmm. that story. That writer spent weeks or months researching that story and wrote thousands of words. And here you are trying, you, you know, you, you are over perhaps a New York Times byline, but certainly not giving the New York Times money, right? <laughs> Um, publishing the first two paragraphs of that story, the first one paragraph of the story, giving giving people the minimum information that they might in their ADHD way require in the instant of doing a search, but ultimately by that action devaluating the real labor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that that's bad, but it's not just a provenance issue. Yeah. Uh, at, at the same, at, you know, it's it's a more complicated issue, and I think it, you know, this is the kind of dynamic that disrupts and ultimately kills centers of human effort. Um, yeah, it compares really interestingly, you know, as you said, to the, the copy-paste phenomenon uh, where there you have the, the human being is, is still centered in that process and the human being can either make a decision to kind of uh, <laughs> record the lines of provenance uh, or, or not uh, to, to sort of make note of whether they've borrowed this, this segment of code from, uh, you know, a properly licensed, uh, you know, piece of software or not, uh, and, and what exactly that was. Uh, but of course those, those human choices and, and those human decisions are part of that, that network of, you know, community. And, that and, and ultimately the human decisions are happening in a very small moment to moment basis. I, yeah. I don't believe that coders should actually be, I mean, everyone should use best practice. Everyone should observe the work of their brethren in the industry and, and you know, nobody should steal software, you know, of any kind, but who among us <laughs> oh, right, totally. has not gotten a stack overflow and, you know, a couple of lines because somebody's smarter than we are and it's three o'clock in the morning and the boss needs the thing to work tomorrow because we're doing the demo. Um, yeah. And where's, we the, have and where's to, the threshold, right? Uh, you, absolutely. You, we, we have to figure out ways of promoting the health of 
the health of healthy efforts, you know, that, that don't depend on a million individuals making the right moral call in a microscopic sense, you know, mm -hmm. every day. That's, that's, not, that's not tenable. It's, in a sense, not their job. You know, yeah. if, you, if you create a consumer economy where people are obliged to buy stuff that, that's wrapped in 10 kinds of plastic, you know, <laughs> they have to throw out the plastic, you know. It's not their fault that yeah. they wanted the tomatoes. Um, we we, we got we to gotta solve these problems better in a, in a more centralized way. And we've got to invest as a society in what we believe in. And open source is one of the things we believe in. Beautifully said. Well, uh, and, and another sort of alleged theft, uh, supply chain security <laughs> firm Phylum, Here we go again. <laughs> uh, published a new report on malware in the PyPy, Python package repository. Specifically, this is a series of new malicious packages posted throughout October that are designed to install a piece of malware that grabs passwords and cookies from browser sessions. According to Phylum, many of these attacks take the form that, you know, comes up again, that NPM is looking to fight with its six-door validation. The attackers fork a popular super mundane utility, tamper with it, and then name it a slight variant of the existing tool. Or sometimes just toss it out there and see if people bite. A few examples of malicious package names include type string, twine, and twine is one that was kind of typo-squatted where the original package was T-W-I-N-E and the uh, malicious one is T-W-Y-N-E. Uh, another example, install pi requests HTTPX and pi hints. So all seem very, uh, very mundane, right? Uh, you can check out the full list on Phylum's blog. If you're, you know, a Python developer and afraid that you have downloaded something unhelpful. <laughs> unhelpful. In, in other security news, SQLite maintainers have patched a 22-year-old bug that could be exploited to crash systems or potentially achieve arbitrary code execution. The vulnerability was rated a 7.5 in its CVE designation, CVE 2022-35737, and it stems from code written around 2000 that presumed a 32-bit architecture but is exploitable on 64-bit systems. The problem might not have been obvious at the time, but now a couple decades down the line, we have an awful lot of SQLite running on 64-bit architecture. And according to Daily Swig writer Charlie Osborne, who spoke with SQLite creator D. Richard Hip, quote, the root cause of the problem was the use of signed 32-bit integers as a byte index into the input string and to compute the size of the output string. When an input string was large enough, the integer would overflow and all kinds of problems ensued, unquote. The vulnerability was patched in SQLite version 3.39.2. And finally, uh, kind of shifting a little bit, uh, Nika noted that that last story was from the era of, of oops, I did it again, uh, <laughs> on the video. Uh, so uh, bringing up some, some figures from even earlier, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, speaking at the Web Summit in Lisbon last week, shared his perspective on blockchain and Web3. And his perspective was not super impressed. Advising the audience to, quote, ignore cryptocurrency and blockchain hype, he said, quote, it's important to clarify in order to discuss the impacts of new technology. You have to understand what the terms mean that we're discussing, what they actually mean beyond the buzzwords. It's a real shame, in fact, that the actual Web3 name was taken by Ethereum folks for the stuff that they're doing with blockchain. In fact, Web3 is not the web at all, unquote. 
Berners-Lee is actually pretty sympathetic to some of the overarching philosophy espoused by Web3 folks, including decentralization and personal ownership of data. Uh, these are some of the fundamental premises of his new startup, Inrupt, which focuses on controlling personal data, as well as his solid project based out of MIT, which aims to use linked data on top of existing W3C standards and protocols to facilitate personal data ownership and improved privacy. Uh, CNBC quotes Berners-Lee in Lisbon saying, quote, Blockchain protocols may be good for some things, but they're not good for solid. They're too slow, too expensive, and too public. Personal data stores have to be fast, cheap, and private, unquote. So I propose we just, you know, skip straight to like Web 5, Web 6, and uh, Web Web 360, Web Series X, uh, <laughs> go wherever solid. we need to go. Yeah, we've got to, I mean, it, it, it is very funny. If you exist in the technology Twitter sphere, um, then you're aware of two things. One, the extraordinary preponderance of Web3, particularly in the New York fin, FinOps kind of community, right? Mm -hmm. New York City is a, is a hotbed of Web3 startups, meaning crypto. Um, and, uh, and the fact that Solid would have been an interesting backend to consider for Mastodon, which is the the disseminated open source Twitter-like social media thing to which some tech people have begun uh, exfiltrating themselves <laughs> it's having their a data <laughs> since Mr. Musk purchased Twitter and took over two weeks ago. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting time in open source and, and social and Web3 and crypto. Indeed. Well, uh... Any last thoughts for today? I I think not. Um, you know, I'm going to have to catch the the cat. That huge noise that you might have heard a couple of minutes into one of my stories was the cat knocking a guitar over and causing a great deal of damage. So we we'll got both cat and it up for the rest of the afternoon. We, we we got both cat and music from cat. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's our contribution for today. All right. That's it for us. Thanks as always to producer Nika and to Lewis and DJ on social and video. We're available in podcast format on all the major formats and you can join us live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern through the Marantis LinkedIn page. Thanks to all of y'all for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye everybody.